Hey, welcome to Freshman Fellowship. I'm John Bourgeois. I'm the campus minister here with RUF at Wake Forest. And this week, we're going to be talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. Last week, we looked at the authority of Scripture, how Jesus trusted the Bible and how his trust can shape our trust. Tonight, we're going to look at the sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible's claim that it is sufficient, that it's sufficient to teach us what humans are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us as humans. I want you to now take a few minutes to read Luke 24, 13 through 35 together. Have someone read it out loud um, and then pause this video and then restart it when you're done reading. That's Luke 24, 13 through 35. Okay, so what's happening in this passage? Cleopas and this other disciple are sad when Jesus finds them. And Jesus's life in ministry and death would have made this sadness especially painful because he was not only a friend who had died, but look at verse 21. They explained that their sadness is a result of how their hopes had been dashed, that they had believed that Jesus was the one who really was going to redeem Israel, that he was the one who was going to be bringing the kingdom of God to earth, the king of heaven to earth, bringing God's justice and peace to reign here and now. That was their expectation. And Jesus' death dashed their hopes. And they were especially crushed when their own religious leaders, who were the ones who should have been serving Jesus as he brought his kingdom, instead they condemned and killed him. And they're in this process of grief, right? They've got anger towards their leaders. Well, look at the passage. What effect... Does, um, does the passage suggest that the report of the resurrection has on them? Look at verses 22 through 24. They seem confused. The women who, who in the first century, um, women had no rights. They were not, their testimony was not admissible of court, which is part of the beauty of how Jesus treats them, right? We see that the Bible lifts women up and says that they were the first to see Jesus at the empty tomb. Jesus gives them a place of prominence and lifts up their voice. But they, the Cleopas and the other disciples, seem to be confused because the women return. They report that there's an empty tomb, that they see these angels. But then when the men went to go check it out, um, they just found the empty tomb and know Jesus. So what would you imagine would be going through their minds as, at this point as they're regarding God's work in their lives and in the world? I mean, maybe they're jaded and cynical. Look at verse 18. Right? They say to Jesus, are you the only person in the world who doesn't know this? Maybe they're frustrated with themselves, frustrated for getting their hopes up to have them dashed, frustrated with God, thinking that he had made these, that he was the one behind these promises, but they're confused, right? They have, they, their hope is, is gone at this point. So look at Jesus's remedy for their problem. Look at verse 27. This is striking. I think about the different things that Jesus could have done in this situation to address their cynicism and their hopelessness and their frustration. What could he have done? Well, it's striking that what Jesus does do is that he points them to the Bible. He points them to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew Bible, to the law, the prophets, and the writings. So the law, these are the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The prophets, these are the, the, um, the history of Israel, the history books as well as uh, the major and minor prophets. And then third, the writings. This is Psalms and Proverbs and the wisdom literature. 
And what Jesus is doing here is he's, they're on this road together and he's walking with them and he's giving them a Bible study. He's walking them through the Bible. He actually does this later in verse 44 in the passage after the one that we read, but he's walking them through the Bible and showing them how it points to him. He's showing them, this is striking, he's showing them that the Bible itself has power. Jesus trusts that the Bible, that the word of God has power to transform people's lives, right? Because what could he have done there? He could have just said, it's me, I'm Jesus. I rose from the dead. Like he, he could have just unveiled them and, and given them an experience of his presence, could have reminded them with his own words of his teaching regarding his death and resurrection. Um, he could have just left them to figure it out on his own, but what he did instead was he walked them through the scriptures so that they might be transformed by the power of God's word through the power of his spirit. Now, Christians have historically believed that the Bible is sufficient to teach us everything necessary for God's glory and for our salvation. And we see here that Jesus is, is demonstrating, he's believing in the sufficiency of scripture for Cleopas and the other disciple. By taking them to the scriptures, he does what Paul commends to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where he writes to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out. It's expired. It's breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God or the person of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. And Luke includes this important detail about this Bible study. That Jesus wasn't just reading the Old Testament with them to show them the, the story so that they could be like David or that they could be like Moses. What he's doing is he's reading the Old Testament with concern to himself, the things concerning himself. Not just the obvious predictive prophecies of the Old Testament, because those are there, but the people and the symbols and the institutions, all of which depict the need for the Messiah. And this is important. This is important so that we don't treat the Bible like a collection of stories or a rule book or a spiritual encyclopedia or some codex that you need to um, have some secret knowledge to figure out, but that it's primarily a story revealing the world's great need for a Messiah and God's provision for that need in Jesus Christ. Now, lots of people in Jesus' day were devoted to the, to the Bible, but they were rejecting Jesus in spite of it. Proper devotion to scripture always directs us to Jesus. Jesus is teaching the Cleopas and the other disciple, and therefore he's teaching us in this passage how to read the Bible. Um, I want you to think about it this way. So I love, when I was in school, I loved English class where we would sit around and like have a poem or uh, a story and, and try to figure out what was the authorial intent in this. And this is fun as well with art, right? If you're studying a piece of art, um, I remember this and I think it was in high school, like why is the Mona Lisa smiling? It's asking these questions that we don't have um, answers to because we don't have the author in the room. Now I want you to imagine that you're sitting in class and you're discussing Romeo and Juliet and then in walks William Shakespeare. And he has all the answers to your questions. He tells you exactly why things happened the way that they did. Right? That's it's game over. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's, he steps into the story, resurrected into the story, and says, all of it's about me. And here's how it's about me. 
Now, what effect do you think that Jesus' Bible study had on Cleopas and the other disciple? What do you think this might mean for them? Look at verses 32 through 33. It says that their hearts burned, that they had this response of faith, hope, and love as God's work was revealed to them. Their heart for God's work and for the world was revived. And it literally turned their lives around. They were walking away from Jerusalem and they turned around and went back to Jerusalem. Returned to Jerusalem renewed and ready to embrace life together in the name of Jesus for the sake of the world. Amen.